You're listening to Click Here. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. This past fall, we did something a little different. Since we'd all come from the public radio world, we decided to create five radio shows. You might have already caught one or two of them on your local public radio station. But if you didn't, we thought we'd give you an opportunity this month to hear them for yourselves. Same click your stories about people making and breaking our digital world, but in a little different format. We hope you like them. Chat GPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. We begin with something you don't generally think about when you think about hacking. The tractor. Could you just introduce yourself to us, please? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm John Abbott. And what do you do? Um, Get out of here. John is having trouble telling me about himself because of Jeffrey. That is the very unaudio friendly rooster who keeps interrupting him. Jeffrey the rooster and John live on a farm in Milledgeville, Georgia, population 17,000. It's about two hours southeast of Atlanta, and the tractor has always been a big part of John's life. Growing up, I was used to riding the older tractors that were just a straight shift diesel engine tractor. Really, the only electrical wiring on it was from the battery to the starter and headlights. But now? Now... The tractors can basically control themselves. You're just up there in case something malfunctions. This is our newest tractor that we've gotten. John climbs into the cab of a John Deere 5075E. When I start up... Once it's cranked up and running, well, it's more like a cell phone on wheels than the tractor he grew up with. In fact, as soon as he's aboard, John pulls out his phone and fires up an app to see how his tractor is doing. I can actually go on my app and go to my live dashboard, and it'll show me every everything the tractor's telling the computer. The computer's telling my phone. It's telling him the outside temperature, that his coolant is working. My fuel temperature, my fuel level, how much fuel I'm consuming how fast I'm going. Which, on the one hand, is kind of incredible to have all this information right there on your phone. But on the other hand, if all that is Bluetooth-enabled and constantly connected to the Internet, well, someone can break into it. It's hackable. And if some bad actor got into a network that all those tractors share, well, among other things, it could put the entire food supply at risk. And because of how John Deere approaches that risk, two unexpected things happen. Farmers are unable to defend themselves against hackers, and they're losing the everyday battle to keep their farm equipment running. And it turns out the person who brought this whole problem to light wasn't a farmer at all. He was a master hacker from Australia, and he goes by the name Sick Codes. Yeah, I'm Sick Codes. I'm a white hat hacker from Australia. Uh, I live in Asia, and I hack for a living. Actually, he does more than that. You know, companies reach out to me, want me to hack their things, or I reach out to companies with things that I've hacked into. And uh, that's what I've done in this case with the John Deere stuff. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of blow up, blown up a little bit, bigger than expected. Sick Codes is a penetration tester. That's someone who's hired by companies to find vulnerabilities in their networks before some bad actor does. And the thing that's made him the latest king of farming hacks is how he figured out a way to bypass the digital locks on the John Deere tractor, kind of like the iPhone jailbreaking that was so popular a few years ago. His hack would allow farmers to monkey around with the tractor's touchscreen, which is something that companies like John Deere have said they're not allowed to do. Yeah, so tractors are kind of like this thing that I've never been inside of, so I've never actually been in a tractor. It just seemed really interesting to find a niche that nobody was hacking or hacking publicly. So it became his pet project, and he started by buying a John Deere tractor touchscreen. Yeah, I bought one, yeah, for eBay, so, yeah. He paid $7,000 for that console display without the tractor. Not easy to find, apparently. And then he just cracked it open and restored the factory settings. I can reset my own tractor, and in fact, I did bypass that uh, with a guy's help from Brazil. So this guy in Brazil gives him John Deere's official software. 
He downloads what he needs to break into the system. And to prove that he could now install whatever he wanted, he uploaded a slightly modified first-person shooter game from the 1990s called Doom. Instead of a shooter, there was a farmer. Instead of a gun, a farmer was riding a tractor. And he unveiled his hack at a place where he was sure it'd get lots of attention. Last year's DEF CON hacking conference in Las Vegas. And while he didn't reveal every detail of what he did, he made clear that anyone who really wanted to could get into the John Deere tractor software. So it did take me a while to break in. I could do it now in about an hour. But yeah, it was a sophisticated attack, as John Deere said. And it was also persistent and invasive. But it was hardware and it was physical involved. So it's not remote. Not remote. In other words, he hacked into just one tractor. But still, he was making a point to both farmers and to John Deere and company. This stuff isn't as secure as it looks, and John Deere may not be as secure as they sound. The fact that someone could hack into that system with such ease suggested that maybe anyone could. And this isn't just John Deere. They just happen to be the biggest farm equipment manufacturer on the planet. Sitcode's hack suggests that any piece of farm equipment that's hooked up to the internet is vulnerable. His performance ended up being the big headline out of DEF CON. I just thought that it would be interesting to people, but I didn't realize it was going to be so interesting to so many people because I thought it was just, you know, agriculture and cybersecurity. But it turned out to be gaming news. It turned out to be national security news. It turned out to be gadget news. Needless to say, John Deere isn't really a fan of Sitcode's DEF CON performance. They were quick to say that this was a hardware hack, that he disconnected the console from the tractor itself. We reached out, but John Deere declined to comment for this story. Suffice to say, John Deere's relationship with sick codes is... It's not the most, you know, we're not the most, you know, we need marriage counseling. Honestly, we need marriage counseling. John Deere declined to comment about their relationship. So maybe it's not surprising that they haven't invited him to come to their factory. I've actually asked for an invite too, which is kind of weird, but they still don't want to invite me. (laughs) Maybe the marriage counseling will help. So John Deere has this rule. Farmers aren't allowed to do their own repairs on their newish high-tech equipment, which means they can't just pick up a wrench anymore. They have to have a company technician come in and do it. The techs arrive with these special laptops. They plug it into the tractor, the software diagnoses the problem, and then they order the part. You've probably seen your mechanic do that in your car. But here's the difference. If you have to bring your car into the shop, leave it there, get a loaner, it's an inconvenience. If you're a farmer whose margins are thin, even at the best of times, waiting for someone from John Deere to show up during that small window of harvest time, that can ruin your business for the year. Consider what happened to Walter Schweitzer a couple of years ago. He raises black Angus cattle outside of Great Falls, Montana. And out of the blue, his tractor started just randomly shutting down. I had a sense, a gut feeling that it was something in the fuel system. I changed fuel filters. I, I started running the tank at a, above half full, but it just kept getting worse and worse. And finally, I called in John Deere and asked if they could send out a tech to work on my tractor. They said, well, you know, we're slammed. It's hand season. Everybody's out, broke down. They said they wouldn't be able to come out for a week or 10 days. So I said, okay, well, maybe I can, uh, can I borrow your computer and hardware stuff so I can figure out my problem? John Deere says, no can do. All right, well, can I rent it? Nope. Okay, well, dang it, I'll buy the dang stuff. How, how much is it? And they said, no, we, we don't sell it. You've got to call a technician. Doesn't matter if it's hang season, doesn't matter if there's a wait. And that's the right to repair debate in a nutshell. It's based on every farmer's fundamental belief in self-sufficiency. And the farmer's reaction? Well, they took matters into their own hands. I live in a little bit of a rural area, and a friend of mine is a farmer, uh, Farmer Dave. Kyle Weens is the founder of iFixit. He's part of a do-it-yourself community that teaches people to fix what they own. He called me. He knew I was a computer guy, and he said, hey, my tractor won't turn on. It's like, what do you mean it won't turn on? He said, well, there's a hydraulic sensor on the tractor tread, and the sensor is bad, and the tractor won't boot because it's a bad sensor. So nothing is actually wrong with the tractor. There's just a bad sensor. 
This happens with onboard computers all the time. It's probably happened to you. It's a thing. So Dave the farmer asks Kyle, the computer guy, if he can figure out a way to just get the computer to ignore the sensor so the tractor would get going again. But there was a problem, and it wasn't technical. It was legal. If he did a workaround, it'd be against the law. A section of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act called Section 1201, which is a, uh, a law that is designed to prevent tinkering. It says that you cannot bypass a lock on an electronic device without permission from the manufacturer. And Deere and Company wasn't giving permission. So back in 2017, a bunch of American farmers started buying pirated versions of John Deere software in members-only online forums. Hackers from Ukraine had created a fix, a kind of firmware that allowed farmers to give basic instructions to the tractor and its software. It allowed them to do what they'd always done, fix their farm equipment themselves. And it drove John Deere so crazy, farmers told us they had to sign a contract ensuring that they wouldn't hack into their own tractors which only made farmers angrier. Why do you think farmers are so stupid? <laughs> Why can't farmers use the same tooling that the dealers have? John Deere wouldn't comment on that either. So it's fair to ask another question. Why is John Deere being so stubborn about this? Why make their customer base so darn mad? John Deere has said publicly that, first of all, the software is intellectual property, so it belongs to them. Second, they're worried farmers will tweak the software. For example, they might adjust the engine to get better gas mileage, and that could also increase emissions. And John Deere says it worries that might add to climate change. Walter Schweitzer says the answer is simpler than that. It's about how much they can charge for a tractor. On most newer models, the frame, the transmission, the engine, all of the critical pieces of that implement are the same. It's just the computer programming that makes the difference between a 120-horsepower tractor and a 160-horsepower tractor. And, no big surprise here, a 160-horsepower tractor costs more. It, you'll, you'll end up paying 20 30% more for a tractor that all they did is change the programming. So in other words, they toggle something in the software and they've got a more expensive, more powerful tractor. We asked John Deere about that, and they declined to comment. But it makes you wonder about this other thing that happened with some stolen tractors in Ukraine shortly after Russia invaded. After the break, we'll explain. This is Click Here. In Norway, a woman's boyfriend forgets who she is overnight. In Detroit, a man is arrested, but he was never at the crime scene. In Spain, disturbing pictures of young girls have appeared, and no one knows who's behind them. Something strange is happening. A collision between people and artificial intelligence. Discover more in The Guardian's new series, Black Box. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes, Monday and Thursdays. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Today, we're taking a look at technologies that were intended to do one thing and ended up doing quite another. Before the break, we heard from farmers battling for the right to repair their own high-tech John Deere tractors. The machines have morphed into what is essentially a computer on wheels, which allows someone like Georgia farmer John Abbott to actually control his tractor from his phone. That's the upside. The downside is that, like anything connected to the Internet, those tractors are now vulnerable to bad actors. Just consider this crazy thing that happened last May on the fringes of the war in Ukraine. Some stolen tractors just stopped working. No explanation. I asked Montana farmer Walter Schweitzer about it. Oh, that's real creepy. Yeah. What creeped him out was this. 
These Russian Federation troops raided a John Deere dealership in Ukraine and drove a bunch of tractors back to Chechnya. You can imagine the scene. They're feeling pretty good about all their new equipment. And when they go to start the tractors up again, nothing. They won't even turn over. They'd been shut down, bricked, remotely. What went through my head is now the world will see what John Deere can do. John Deere doesn't deny it happened, but wouldn't confirm that they were behind it either. And CNN, which had the original story, said their source was an unnamed businessman in Ukraine. So that leaves just two alternatives. John Deere disabled the machines remotely, or some random hackers did. Either way, it's troubling. The fact that that they can make your $500,000 piece of equipment nothing more than a paperweight by pushing a button, that's disconcerting. So here's the doomsday scenario. It's harvest time, farmers are out in the field bringing in crops, haying, and a bad actor has been sitting in John Deere's networks for months, waiting for harvest time, working their way into the system, burrowing into the communication software that speaks to John Deere tractors. And no one has noticed until the hackers activate some malware. And they send a little command that tells all the engines connected to the network to start revving. RPMs go up, they keep climbing, until the engines actually die. It's not far-fetched. Kirsten Todd used to be chief of staff at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And she says these were the kinds of scenarios they were thinking about all the time. We look at the interdependencies of, you know, the Internet of Things and, quite frankly, the interdependencies of the digital economy. You know, what is critical and what is not, those lines have become more and more blurred. And she says there's a good case to be made that tractors should be seen as part of the nation's critical infrastructure and protected that way. So the fact that we are now connecting tractors to the Internet, that we're seeing an increase in more smart technologies in the agriculture sector, means that we've got to be thinking differently. And by that, she means viewing an attack on agricultural targets through the same sort of lens we might see, for example, an attack on a hospital. In both cases, lives could be at stake. Walter, in Montana, has dealt with drought, trade wars, a pandemic, skyrocketing prices, and all these hassles with repairing his own tractor. Against that kind of long list, he says he can't dwell on people with keyboards trying to turn off his equipment. If I lost a lot of sleep worrying about hackers, then they would be winning, and I don't like to let them win. Even the farmer we met at the beginning of the show, John Abbott, says he's looking at all these technologies in a new way. He sees how vulnerable everything can be, the combine, the grain bins, sprinklers that keep your crops fed and healthy. If you hacked our water sprinklers and turned our sprinklers on, that, you know, you could ruin everything that we've got. Or you make it die by keeping them off. For once, Jeffrey the rooster has no comment. So hacking tractors turned out to open up the whole debate on right to repair and more fundamentally, whether farmers are the owners of their own fate. And it still isn't resolved, although John Deere is slowly providing farmers with a little more freedom to work on their new computer-driven machines. Today on the show, stories about some technologies that have taken on a life of their own, often in completely unintended ways. We've just heard about internet-connected tractors and the new problems they face, But sometimes these high-tech breakthroughs can be used in ways that are truly dangerous. And that's the subject of our next story. How one company suggested we put a weapon of war into a completely unexpected place. And just a warning, this story includes references to school shootings. We got a guy with a long rifle. We don't know where the hell he's at. He's in the damn building right there. This is radio traffic from Dallas Police. We may have the suspect pinned down northwest corner of the building uh, on the second floor. It's from 2016. They were in a standoff with a sniper who had killed five officers. He was a military veteran who had served in Afghanistan. Those officers by squad car 2091, you're facing the wrong direction. You need to get behind some cover. So they sent in a robot. 
You know, one of those robots that bomb techs use to defuse explosives. But in this case, the robot wasn't there to take a bomb apart. It was there to deliver one. Police detonated it and killed the shooter. This incident was incredibly controversial because it blurred the line between policing and warfare. Gun control in the United States, the political movements have not made a significant impact. And I wanted to take a different approach. What if we could make the bullet obsolete? This is Rick Smith. He's the CEO of Axon. It provides technology to police departments, things like tasers and body cams. He wants to look at giving police a new tool, tasers on drones. This response could bring a situation under control in a matter of seconds. Rick Smith may have thought he'd come up with the perfect solution, but not everyone agreed that putting tasers on drones was a good idea. Weaponizing drones and robots has been a frontier, right? And so the question was, is that a line that we just don't want to cross? Barry Friedman is a law professor at New York University and the director of the NYU Policing Project. He was also the head of Axon's AI Ethics Board. It's a group of independent experts who give feedback on potential products. And these sorts of boards are becoming more and more common because of the ethical questions that seem to swirl around technologies that are powered by artificial intelligence. In the case of drones, they use AI software to perceive their surroundings. They can track objects and provide analytical feedback in real time. The problem is, and this has been the case for years, the algorithms that power AI can be biased. The camera's AI controls can invade privacy. And because, as a general matter, these kinds of devices are built to operate at scale, any problems they have don't just affect individuals, they affect lots of people all at once. There have been some whistleblowers who have been warning about the dangers of AI over the past few years. One of them... I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government. I'm just a scientist who suddenly realized that these things are getting smarter than us. And I want to sort of blow the whistle and say, we should worry seriously. All of this is one of the reasons why Axon, one of the country's leading manufacturers of policing technology, decided to create an independent review board to advise the company on how they could develop AI-powered products without trampling on civil liberties. They were operating in a space that was fraught and where they got criticized a lot and thought it would be good to have an independent outside body that uh, would guide them. And we were a little skeptical of it, frankly, but we agreed to listen. And I think over the period of time in which the ethics board was operating and operating well, everybody felt that good work was being done. Good work like convincing Axon not to put facial recognition software in its police body cams. Because it just had too many issues. It misidentifies the faces of women and people of color all the time. They also convinced the company to modify plans to use high-speed license plate scanners. And we're going to test the Fleet 3 system with license plate reading technology with some of the fastest cars in the world. The AI ethics board thought it could be used to illegally track people. And the company eventually agreed. So when Axon's chairman asked the board to take a look at something they called Project Ion, an effort to put tasers onto drones, they weren't in love with the idea. We did let them know that we were surprised and really had some concerns. But they all agreed to keep an open mind. The most compelling use case to the board was, these are folks who might well get shot. And if we can figure out a way to create greater distance with the taser, we might save lives. And the drone was a way to do that. According to a report of their internal deliberations obtained by Clakir, the board quickly agreed that there were certain use cases for taser drone technology that were just non-starters. Things like crowd control at protests or patrolling the border. A drone has value as an eye in the sky. That itself is incredibly invasive. But to then think that that's going to be able to zap people that it sees, like that's, that's disturbing science fiction. Which is, I think, why everybody's first reaction when they hear about weaponizing drones is the one like, nah, this seems like a bridge too far. Sure. I mean, you know, some level conjures up, you know, images from Star Wars or something. It's not so good. You know, often I think that people working in technology can ignore uh, the social context in which these products are used. 
Max Isaacs is a staff attorney at NYU's Policing Project, and he did a lot of the research that went into the board's assessment. You can't just develop the technology with some safeguards. You need to look at the types of policies that agencies are enacting, the way that they're enforced, the way that officers are trained, all of the pieces kind of combined. Which is why the board wasn't just looking at adding wings to a taser. It had to take into account some of the issues that dogged the tasers themselves. We've heard some really disturbing reports about the abuse of tasers uh, against school children, elderly people, uh, even against people who, who have been restrained, who are in handcuffs. Uh, and, and given that context, given the fact that the taser exists today and we haven't found a way to prevent these abuses from happening, uh, those concerns are only magnified. And that doesn't even take into account the racial disparities that seem to come up. It gets used disproportionately on black and brown folks. That just always is the case. The report cited worries about dehumanization. The idea of a control panel with a taser drone felt a little bit too much like a gaming platform. And even if they had thought of every eventuality, how could they ensure that the rules of engagement would be followed? The 18,000 agencies in the country, as you might guess, there's wide variety in the quality of those agencies. Which was one of the problems, the report said, they just couldn't overcome. There was a group of us that were just concerned that as well as we could design this, and if designed well, as much as we believed it was something the world could benefit from, we couldn't trust the overall variance in policing to make this a commercially viable product. After a year of study, the Ethics Board decided to put it to a vote. It was easily our most fraught meeting ever. Barry Friedman was in the room. And I think it was fraught in part because all of us understood the compelling use case. And I want to stress that. We, we unanimously understood why you might want to be able to use less lethal force from a distance to save lives. And the police on the board, you know, told stories about horror shows they'd experienced in their departments where somebody had been shot and their lives might have been saved with something like this. To avoid situations like what happened in Dallas that we talked about before, maybe a taser would have given police the room they needed to just arrest the guy instead of sending in a robot carrying a ball. And we all kind of went around the room and said how we felt. And then we had back and forth. And then after that, uh, we took a vote. In the end, it was eight to four against. They decided Axon should not develop tasers on drones. We decided not to go ahead with the pilot. Uh, and and it, it was a tough decision. I know Rick was very disappointed. Rick Smith, the CEO of Axon. This has really been one of his dreams, I think. The summer of 2022 was a terrible one for mass shootings. In Buffalo, New York, a community mourns, remembering the 10 people killed in what officials call a racist hate crime Saturday at Top Supermarket. Good afternoon, and we're coming on the air because of an awful scene playing out today in Texas. An active shooter for a time at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. There is the Buffalo and Uvalde shootings happened just a couple of weeks after Axon's ethics board came to the conclusion that tasers and drones shouldn't mix. Which is why it seems so odd when Axon CEO Rick Smith released this video. We've talked about these horrific school shootings. They just keep happening. He announced that Axon would be developing a taser drone for schools. And he explained how it would prevent mass shootings. And if that human operator gives the go signal, then the drone rotors up. It immediately deploys into the scene. And there, it could incapacitate that threat. I believe this is how we can end school shootings. Did, did, like, using it in schools ever come up? Absolutely not. Like, that wasn't even, I don't think I've crossed anyone's mind as a potential case scenario. This is me, Cole Jordan McBride. She's a community organizer in Chicago, and she was on the Axon Ethics Board. She was one of the four members of the board who voted to give that taser drone pilot program a try. And she thought that Rick Smith's school taser plan was a little nuts. It, it just felt fanciful to me, and it felt it felt like an emotional response that wasn't completely thought through. And we should say here that we asked to interview Rick Smith for the show, and his company, Axon, declined. Nicole said she tried to imagine how drones in schools would even work. 
I was thinking, like, even in Chicago, like, how many school buildings are in Chicago? It's impossible for you to know which school would potentially be victim to this, right? In order to make an arm drone helpful in a school setting, it needed to be inside. So now we're talking about literally putting a drone in every single school across America. I thought about the, the, the amount of money that would be, you know, I thought about the over-surveillance of that. To figure out where the shooter was, Axon would either need access to any cameras that were there or would need someone to install them. Though Axon's video of how it would all work made it seem a lot simpler than that. Working through partners, we're going to activate any camera in any school, church, or public building so that it can be easily shared with first responders. But actually, think about every school shooting you've ever read about. The gunman gets into the school, armed to the teeth, and he's wearing body armor. They usually barricade themselves in a classroom. You know, drones have to get around. And shooters go into rooms and close doors. Barry Friedman again. And the company's answer was, well, we'll just, you know, we'll cut holes in all the doors so the drone could get through. And that, you know, you're trying a little too hard then. For the board, the taser drones in schools was a bridge too far. We could have talked as a board, and we could have talked with the company, but there was this great eagerness on Rick's part to, you know, get this idea out there in the aftermath of Uvalde, and we couldn't operate that way. So, just days after Rick Smith's surprise announcement, Axon's AI ethics board began a chain of phone calls, and they held an emergency meeting. Do we issue a statement? Do we resign? We had emails about who would resign. Uh, nine of us resigned. Friedman said he felt like there wasn't a choice. Board members were often under attack from the outside world for, you know, working with Axon. But we believed that we were making progress and it was the right thing to do. And it's interesting because in the aftermath of the collapse of the board, I got a number of emails from folks in different places in the civil liberties, racial justice community saying, it's a good thing that you did the work, and it's a good thing that you stopped when you did, given the circumstances. I know that they have a new ethics board or, or something like an ethics board. You know, my hope and my prayer is that those individuals are asking the hard questions and that their design team is really pushing back and, and trying to answer for all of these what-ifs. Axon, for its part, says it's shelved the idea of having armed drones in schools for now. The company told Click here in a statement that taser drones in schools is an idea, not a product, and it's a long way off. In the meantime, Rick Smith has said publicly that he's engaging with teachers and school boards and continuing to explore the idea. When we come back, a particular kind of scammer takes a turf war into a totally unexpected direction. This is Click Here. Stay with us. What if someone you love asks you to help them die? What would you say? This is the powerful question at the heart of the ultimate choice. The series follows the journey of Michael and his wife Anne as they grapple with his request to choose the way he wants to die. I'm Rob Cribb, and through their story, I learned a lot about my own family. I hope the show is a way to start conversations many of us want to have, but rarely do. The Ultimate Choice is out now. This is Click Here. Today, we're looking at how tech can take on a life of its own and move from an online world into our real one. And we'll finish with a crazy story about how a group of young men in their teens and 20s decided to start a new kind of business, something they called violence as a service. It's an online marketplace that allows you to connect with someone who's willing to exact violence in real life. And just a warning here, this story contains the sound of gunfire and some strong language. Violence as a Service was the brainchild of an existing community of cybercriminals who do something called SIM swapping, which, at its most basic level, involves a hacker taking over a mobile phone number and then grabbing all the things associated with it. It allows them to steal passwords or take over multi-factor authentication, even drain cryptocurrency accounts. 
And people who are good at SIM swapping can literally make millions. Do you have like a plan, like when you won't do this anymore? Is there a certain amount of money you'll get to? I think about nine figs. Really? And how close are you? <laughs> really far. <laughs> okay. I mean, nine figs, that's a hundred million dollars. That's a few more years at least. That's Yuki. He's big in the sim swapping community. Is it right to think of sim swappers as being younger people? Or do I misunderstand that? That is very accurate, by the way. A lot of sim swappers are actually like 13 to like 18. Yuki is a little older than that. And we found him and the others we talked to on a Telegram channel for sim swappers. Most sim swappers are teenagers, which is a large part of the problem. If you have a bunch of adolescents breaking the law with tons of cash and time to burn, it isn't too surprising that things would get a little violent and a little weird. But I'm not sure anyone really expected for it to get this wild. I say, what you need done? He say, oh, I just need to throw a brick in his window. Shootings, uh, fire bombings. I mean, the worst one we've probably done <laughs> was kidnap someone. If I had to come to it, like killings, which has came to that, but I'll speak on that later. The story that took violence as a service out of the shadows was the arrest of a 21-year-old New Jersey man back in August of last year. His name was Patrick McGovern Allen, and he was pretty well known in sim-swapping circles. His alias was Tongue, as in inside your mouth. And up until recently, he was living with his grandparents in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. He worked at a local restaurant called A Touch of Italy. That is, until the FBI arrested him accusing him of taking part in some violence-as-a-service operations. Patrick's arrest was first reported by a cybersecurity publication called Krebs on Security. And Patrick appears to be one of the first people to be arrested for this kind of score-settling, cyber-meets-real-world crime. It turns out he was good friends with this guy. Uh, I'm John Gotti. Uh, not that John Gotti. It's like my alias. Uh, nobody knows like my real name, obviously, so I'm not going to bring that out there. But uh, John Gotti is a fellow sim swapper, and he's co-owner of a group that's dedicated to brickings and other violence for hire. Pretty much, these people like have voice chat like arguments over like a video game, or uh, it, it sounds silly, but like literally a video game kind of thing, or like they they like dox each other, and then they find somebody to do the work so they can brick them or do a shooting or robbing or stabbing. Completely depends on the situation. Did you know Patrick uh, McGovern Allen? His name was Tongue? I did. I do. I do. I do. That's my boy. Patrick was a member of a sim swapping group Gotti founded called FNM. And Gotti showed us a screenshot of its ownership page to prove he really was who he said he was. Uh, did you know him only virtually or did you know him, know him? Um, it is possible that we've encountered each other two or three times IRL. And what was he like? He was a chill dude. Uh, I don't. I don't really know how to explain the guy. He was. He was a bit off, but he was. I don't know. He was a chill dude. He was uh, honorable. Meaning, if he said he was going to do something, he did it. Yeah. But sim swappers we talked to told us that even they found Patrick a little reckless. Like the time a few years ago when he drove his Lexus into a building. He did drive a car into a house. He did. He did. It is what it is. Some people do things sometimes they don't mean to, you know. Accidents happen. I mean, he crashed a car into a building for no reason, just because he felt like it. So, I mean, like, you know. This is a sim swapper who goes by the name Fade. He knew Patrick, too. Well, I knew him for a while. We weren't, like, super close or whatever, but I knew him. He had, like, a few brain cells missing, but that's about it. Fade told us Patrick was so out there, he wasn't surprised when the FBI rolled up on him back in August of last year. He said everyone in the community was expecting him to get arrested. It's like a family. Everyone knows what's going on. Patrick stands accused of taking part in two separate violence-as-a-service jobs in Pennsylvania, a firebombing and then a shooting a few weeks later. I mean, everyone, everyone of Patrick's friends knew he was going to get arrested. Patrick knew himself he was going to get arrested. I mean, you know, it weren't no secret, but Patrick didn't have much choice. The criminal complaint against Patrick made clear that his operational security wasn't top-notch. For one thing, he put the proof videos of the shooting on both Discord, a kind of messaging platform for gamers, and on Telegram, an encrypted communications app. 
This is one of the videos he posted. It looks like there's two males wearing all black face masks. This is Detective David Hale. He's with the Criminal Investigations Unit in the Westtown East Goshen Police Department. It's outside of Philadelphia. And he's one of the investigators in the case. And this is him describing a proof video Patrick is allegedly linked to. An individual flashes a handgun, a semi-automatic pistol. Um, he walks up to the front window. He's probably about 20 feet away from the window and then unloads eight consecutive shots within, you know, a second or two. You ready? Mm-hmm. Just inactive was he. They're saying Justin Active was here. Justin, or Active, is another SIM swapper in the community. We talked to him by text, and he said Patrick was targeting him. In the criminal complaint against Patrick, the FBI said the shooter was wearing an Air Jordan hoodie, a dark balaclava, and semi-rimless glasses. Patrick, the FBI says in the complaint, wore dark, semi-rimless glasses, just like the guy in the video. The firebombing, which happened a few weeks earlier, wasn't exactly stealth either. The video shows two suspects in front of the house. One is wearing a red and black lumberjack shirt, and the camera focuses on a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 grape wine. It's stuffed with a cloth fuse, and they're trying to light it. Light it, light light it, light it, they say. The Molotov cocktail bounces off the window frame and sets the front of the house on fire. The video shows them starting to run, and then it ends abruptly. Pick it up. According to the FBI, the people inside the house called 911, and they said something was thrown at the house just before a fire started. They told the police that they had heard male voices outside, and there was some laughing just before they heard a loud noise and smelled smoke. That video was posted on Discord, too. Discord's Trust and Safety Department found chats from someone named Tung that seemed to be taking responsibility for both operations. Details about those attacks are in the criminal complaint against Patrick, too. Pat was an idiot. This is Yuki again. He got caught, and that doesn't happen to people who are smart. Hmm. And careful. And careful, yeah. I mean, you can be reckless and you can be smart and nothing will happen. But he was just reckless and didn't care about any of it. And Yuki decided to take this informal, dangerous thing Pat was doing and make it into a business. He created an actual violence-as-a-service online marketplace that not only solicits, but offers up people willing to commit real-life violent crime. He calls it Brick Squad. Brick Squad is the front lines, you know. He says this is the first time he's spoken to journalists about it. You can order, throw a Molotov at their house, get their house, like, shot up, even get the person who's in the house robbed, just a bunch of other things. I started it as a side project, and it's more like a supply-to-demand type of thing, you know? Like, people really want to get back at their enemies online, so I just decided to hop in on it and be like, you know... Why not? Like, why not? Well, there are lots of reasons why not. As if to show just how ubiquitous violence as a service is becoming, Yuki set up a new website to publicize his new Brick Squad venture. I went online to take a look, and the website's pretty basic, like websites looked when the internet was just starting out. It has a black background, red type, three simple columns. The heading on the first reads, Weapon. And it's followed by a short list. Brick, Molotov, shooting, robbery, custom. The second column has corresponding prices. Two grand for a Molotov, four for a shooting. And a link in the third column allowed you to go ahead and order. Though Yuki said Brick Squad doesn't really do its IRL business there. Well, I only put up the website because I wanted to, you know, redirect people to the Telegram, add more attention to it, more accessibility, you know? Their Telegram channel doesn't leave much to the imagination. It's a kind of match.com of violence. They put people together. One ad asks if anyone can be in Sydney's Hyde Park. Anyone who can be here on September 8th around midday and wants to make $1,000? DM me, it reads. Houston, Florida, reads another. Want to brick a window for $500? Let me know. 
the prices actually vary a lot. Normally, the starting price would go at like $5,000 to shoot up a house, but not like hurt anyone. Brick Squad facilitates things. They get the address, the instructions, and then hold money in escrow until the deed is done. And Brick Squad typically acts as a middleman, though sometimes if a job is local, they'll go ahead and do it themselves. This is a bricking video that Yuki appears to be in. Shout out to Sydney. Shout out to Gossip Girls. Yuki was here. When Brick Squad just facilitates a job, they take a cut for their trouble. If this feels like something out of Goodfellas, there's a good reason why. All these brickings and arsons and drive-bys don't exist in a vacuum. They're motivated by the same things that motivate most criminals in the real world big money and power and striking fear in the hearts of anyone who crosses you. So it's all business. If you want to steal someone's money, there's a lot of consequences from that. You cross a guy in the sim swapping community, he'll hire someone to make your life miserable. And this may seem reminiscent of something else you may have heard about, something called swatting. An apparent hoax had a home in Sarasota surrounded. Nearly three dozen personnel responded to a situation thinking that a teenager killed his own family, and then threatened to blow up his home. Young kids call emergency services and get the police to send SWAT teams to somebody's house just to intimidate or harass someone they don't like. And it's getting people killed. Detective Hale of the Goshen Police Department says violence as a service is what swatting has become. Swatting is becoming kind of old hat, and now they're stepping it up to make it a little bit more serious. In one sense, you could think of this as a thing that only affects cybercriminals, bad people doing bad things to other bad people. But that would be naive. Once this violence moves into the real world and you've got people throwing bricks at a house, it's no longer just inside the sim-swapping community, no matter what Yuki and Fade and Gotti say. The people ordering up these jobs are 13- to 18-year-old sim-swappers who have made a lot of money. And it wouldn't be a stretch to think they're probably living with their parents. And their parents probably have no idea that their kids are somehow involved in cybercrime. Detective Hale says families become casualties too. It's almost laughable that these people literally live in their parents' basements and they're 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. So it's like the cliche, right? And a lot of the parents can't stand the fact that their kids live in their basements because they are getting their doors kicked in Routinely. I mean, we had an individual who lived in our town that she was swatted probably at least a half a dozen times over the course of a year. Other individuals on the other receiving end, it's almost a weekly occurrence. What makes this so hard to control is that most of the people throwing bricks or shooting up a house are minors. It's a criminal mischief, right? You know, it's a kid breaking a window. Guilty. I've done it when I was a kid, you know, throwing an egg on a mischief night. The FBI is unlikely to charge a minor for throwing a brick. So there's an aspect of invincibility that goes along with this. And that could explain why it's getting bigger and more commonplace. But this is about more than just mischief or punking someone you don't like. The intent behind it is a little bit more malice-based. We're looking at a lot of people beginning in their mid-teens, and it goes up until 2021, 20, 22. Patrick was in his 20s, so a grand jury was able to charge him with stalking, use of a firearm to commit a felony, and aiding and abetting a crime. He eventually pleaded guilty to all counts, and he was sentenced to more than 13 years in prison. As for Brick Squad, it's since been taken down. But that doesn't mean the violence-as-a-service marketplace is gone. I think it's fair to say that it's an issue, and it's not going away anytime soon. And I, I, it almost seems like they're living an a online video game in real life. And it's like, it's not real. You know, a SWAT call is just a phone call. No big deal. But now people are potentially getting shot. I mean, that's, that's, that's a problem. And the guys running these operations, they have no remorse about what they're doing. When we ask them about that, they seem to shrug it off. It's not because I have like morals or whatever. I mean, I don't really care. I mean, it's like a, it's a man's business. So. It's just a job. I wouldn't be doing it if I felt bad. Which means it's escalating in such a way that even sim swappers like Yuki are starting to take unusual precautions. Okay, I, the thing is, I'm going to tell you, I don't actually have a phone because, well, yeah, I don't have a phone. <laughs> is that because you know how easy it is to sim swap? <laughs> no comment. 
This is Click Here. Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer, and Lucas Riley and Jade Abdul-Malik are our staff writers. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski, and Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. Our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. And check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. Next week on a special holiday episode of Click Here, we look at how technology has democratized our ability to dissect and decode the actions of dictators. So why are we talking to you today? I would imagine it is some combination of being interested in all the horrific and terrifying things that North Korea is doing and tracking that. That is exactly right. That is why we want to talk to you. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and that's next Tuesday on Click Here. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.